0: It is the morning show. I'm K Darcher Kent. We explore a new PBS Wisconsin series on racist policies throughout Wisconsin history and the consequences for communities today. First, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with an update on the life of a Cuban Wisconsinite who lives in La Crosse. He's featured on the podcast WPR Reports
1: Uprooted. Ernesto Rodriguez came to Wisconsin in the summer of 1980. That's after making a treacherous journey on a fishing boat from Cuba to the United States. Quickly after arriving on shore, Erne was shipped off to Fort McCoy in Sparta, Wisconsin. And it's in the military base's kitchen that he got a crash course in American food from a local
2: cook. One day he said, are you guys like macaroni and cheese? What the hell is macaroni and cheese?
1: Erne has come to love mac and cheese and burgers. But as he first told us in the podcast WPR Reports Uprooted, he also still cooks traditional Cuban food like congri and chicken fricassee. Erne has embraced life in Wisconsin, but has never let go of his Cuban roots. He's lived between two worlds, only able to walk in one of them, the U.S. He's dreamed of returning to Cuba for a visit.
2: Well, the first thing I'm going to do is go to my hometown. See if we are recognize where I used to live. And then spend the time with my family in Florida.
1: Erne has been a permanent resident of the U.S. for decades, but he wasn't able to become a citizen due to paperwork issues with his Cuban birth certificate. That means he couldn't vote or get a U.S. passport to travel. That is, until fall 2023. Ernesto Rodriguez traveled to Minnesota, where he took part in a naturalization ceremony.
0: All right. If everybody can please raise your right hand, and you're going to repeat after me,
1: I hereby declare. I hereby I hereby declare. declare. After reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, Erne received his certificate of naturalization.
2: He was beaming. Yeah, American citizen. I'm happy. I'm excited. You know, it's big, big stuff.
1: He waited more than 40 years for this moment.
2: i feel released now. Because now I can vote. Now I can apply to be like real mayor.
1: <laughs> he may be joking about running for mayor, but he's very serious about getting to vote. Erne grew up in Cuba and has only just become a U.S. citizen. He's in his mid-60s and he's never voted in an election.
2: In 40 years I've been here, I have a 6th president, Jimmy Carter, Reagan, Bush.
1: He keeps up with politics in the news, so this is a huge deal to finally be able to participate in the democratic process. As for Erne's other lifelong dream, going back to visit Cuba, now that he can actually do it, he has some mixed feelings.
2: The only way I can go to Cuba is the whole government thing is throw away, throw to the garbage. If Cuba be free, then I can go there.
1: Erne is wary of the Cuban government. He misses his family, but even his sister discourages him from visiting. It's partially because he's been speaking out against the government and communism.
2: Cuba, you say, I don't like Castro, And there's people watching you. And they put you in prison for no reason.
1: Standing proudly next to Erne is Michelle Pinzel. They've been close friends for nearly two decades. So this day is emotional for her, too. It's just incredible to see how patient and how diligent Ernesto has been um, in all of these years. While Erne waits to vote and thinks about visiting Cuba, he has other things he wants to tackle first as a citizen.
2: Enjoy my life in, in a great country, America. Work to prove my life a little more, and maybe buy a house and be a comedy. you know, stand comedy. Uh, Make a joke.
1: <laughs> but before he launches his stand-up comedy career, Erne is taking the day to celebrate. His first stop? Lunch at a Cuban restaurant in the Twin Cities. His second stop? The Mall of America, so he can find a shirt or hat that features the U.S. and Cuban flags. To learn more about Ernie's life in Cuba and Wisconsin, check out the podcast WPR Reports Uprooted at wpr.org slash uprooted. Big thanks to Mark Rickers for recording the audio for this story in Minneapolis. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowland and Mary Peterson of Appleton. I'm Maureen McCollum.
0: It is The Morning Show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. PBS Wisconsin launches a new series called Wisconsin in Black and White, shedding light on the effects of racism through generations. And you can be part of this conversation. Call in with a question. Share your views. 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. Merv Seymour is a special projects journalist for PBS Wisconsin's news and public affairs program Here and Now, worked on this series. Merv, welcome back to the Ideas Network.
3: Good morning, Kate. Thanks for having me this morning.
0: Good morning. The series talks about the through line between slavery and incarceration and the overrepresentation of black people in prisons now. How different is Wisconsin from other areas of the country?
3: Well, you look at the numbers and numbers tell a story. Um, You know, Wisconsin leaves the nation in the incarceration of Black men. Um, You know, Blacks in the state of Wisconsin represent about 6% of the population, but about uh, 42% of those who are incarcerated. So if you took um, 36, you know, Blacks and put them in a a classroom, per se, uh, one in 36 of those Blacks would find themselves being incarcerated. So, um, you know, nationally, um, Blacks are about five times more likely to be incarcerated uh, than white folks, and here in the state of Wisconsin, that number is uh, 12 times more likely um, than a white person here in the state of Wisconsin. So the numbers uh, tell the story, and it's not a, a very pretty story for lots of people, obviously
0: you talked with so many people about this issue um and i'm just wondering these were very raw very real interviews what stood out to you in how you went about talking about this series and hearing from from so many different people from all walks of life
3: well you know it's interesting um you know as a journalist you know you you just you follow um where uh, you know, the story the research takes template. you. Yeah, Yeah. you yep. you go where it takes you. And um, as we kind of dug into this, and this is a really, really huge effort between us and the Nehemiah uh, Center. Um, and um, we had a huge team. This process has been going on for uh, probably over four years. And I just stepped into it, uh, you know, a, a few years ago when I started at PBS Wisconsin. But I think we really learned a lot from just seeing how, you know a lot of these issues are uh, are connected to each other you know we broke it down into uh, the criminal justice system education um, economic empowerment and um health and wellness uh, and you find out that you know uh you know over policing and you know the history of uh of arresting black folks for doing minimal crimes you know um that takes people away from the family that affects income um, then laws uh, with education, you know, affects the ability to be educated uh, and that affects your ability to get a job. Um, and the stresses from, you know, oppression and those sort of things affect your health and birth rates and all these other things. And, and everything is, is really connected. And I, I, I learned so much about, um, you know, that connection and how it's all um, kind of intertwined with each other.
0: Some people in the series are calling on federal and state governments to take accountability for issues in in the criminal justice system. And how could Wisconsin authorities take accountability for the system's problems and the disparities that are so pronounced?
3: Well, you know, these are calls that have been going on for, as we we know, decades. And and, and, and I guess it starts probably with law and policy. You know, um, that's really where you know, the action takes place. Um, obviously, advocates are calling for uh, more funding towards uh, education and not prisons. Um, even governor, former uh, Wisconsin governor, Tommy Thompson, who uh, is kind of has the notoriety of building more prisons in the state than any other governor. You know, t- today he's all about education uh for folks that are incarcerated he's all about uh giving them the tools they need um that will allow them to uh be um, more productive you know once they leave um you know Mm. the prisons um you know and people want to see more funding towards community-based programs like uh, you know drug treatment drug treatment and prison diversion programs and, and really just offering alternatives to prison and you know in talking with secretary carr about some of these things you know, he's pretty straight up about uh, these are things that uh, he's looking into and and wants to um, do what he can to, you know, push uh, in that direction in terms of trying to create what they call a more trauma based kind of care towards uh, incarceration, which means, you know, you're just being, you know, providing the tools that someone needs. So they're not just coming out here um without any kind of support in terms of giving themselves a chance to get back on their feet.
0: Yeah, so you talked with uh, the secretary for the Wisconsin Department of Corrections, Kevin Carr. We're talking with Merv Seymour, PBS Wisconsin journalist, worked on the series Wisconsin in Black and White. Call in with a question. You can share your comments along the way. 800-642-1234. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show on the Ideas Network. It is The Morning Show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent, a new series from PBS Wisconsin. It explores how racist policies in our state's history affect people's lives today. Merv Seymour is a special projects journalist for PBS Wisconsin, worked on Wisconsin in black and white. You can add your voice. Call in with a question. You can share your thoughts. 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. Merv, interviewed Reverend Greg Lewis in Milwaukee, who says people elsewhere are unfamiliar with the prevalence of racism in Milwaukee.
3: When I go to other places, people don't even know that Milwaukee have black folks living here. He says, black folks in Milwaukee? Yeah. And they're being oppressed like crazy.
0: <laughs> and he also called Milwaukee the Selma of the North. That stood out to me. How much do people in Wisconsin understand systemic racism in the
1: state?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's one of those uh, answers where it depends on who you talk to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the person who's living it every day, the person who is being profiled, the person who is being uh, ID'd when everybody else isn't being ID'd, the person being singled out, um, they understand it. They may not understand it in terms of uh, the term systemic. Um, but they certainly understand it in terms of of, of living it. And I know as an African American myself, I've certainly uh, seen, you know, situations like that, um, you know, and you spread out in some of the rural parts of, the, uh, of Wisconsin and, you know, and, and maybe people don't know that much about it and p- probably most don't because um, it's not something they would probably think about, uh, because it may not affect their uh, immediate lives. So I, I really think that uh, that's a one of those things that it really depends on who you talk to, but I would say most people don't uh, know about and understand, you know, systemic racism, racism and how it works. And, and I certainly had to learn some things as I dove into this, um, because it really speaks to, you know, how our government um, on a national level and then obviously on a state level created these you know, policies that, you know, uh, disenfranchise so, you know, so, so many people of color um, You know, in terms of um, loans for housing, you know, Mm -hmm. during a time when everyone uh, was, was, you know, uh, had opportunities to do those sorts of things. Um, So, yeah, it really depends on who you talk to.
0: Let's turn to the work of the Nehemiah Center for Urban Leadership Development um, in Madison. Dr. Alex G, um, you interviewed um, G and says, you know, people avoid recognizing their culpability for racism within schools.
2: We want to um, to fight against racism, but when we don't properly address it, the educational systems themselves become breeding grounds for racism.
0: Why do people avoid taking that responsibility?
2: Ooh, that's
3: another million dollar question um you know um obviously it's a it's an extremely uncomfortable um, topic for i think most people um it's, it's a heavy weight to toe for uh people that kind of get involved in the conversation you know it hurts uh, it's painful you know it's the history of uh how we got here is certainly painful and i think a lot of people look at it and and, and say well it doesn't affect me um you know um you know and and there are folks out there that that do step up and you know and say that i'm going i'm going to get involved and i'm going to uh do something to to kind of affect change um but i think there is a certain level of fear um that people have uh and i think there are folks too that are concerned about you know how it's going to impact their you know um uh, business relationships and personal relationships. uh, What are other people going to think if I stand for this or, you know, or stand for that? Um, So, yeah, a really complex kind of, um, you know, solution to something like that.
0: One breathtaking moment in one of your interviews, the person said, white society is addicted to racism. And it's it's a line that just was it's scary and it has many layers to it. Um, did that stand out to you?
3: I do. Uh, I think you're speaking of a, a soundbite from uh, associate professor Ian Main in the, mm-hmm. the Wisconsin law department, um, you know, and, you know, it's, it's so much of this is a perspective that everyone we all have different perspectives based on our experiences and you know I Maine's a person who uh you know teaches law and, and and it's worked on the front lines of the civil rights and worked with innocence uh, uh you know types of you know projects uh helping you know free people um who are wrongly convicted and that's his experience and mm-hmm. um and we certainly uh, as uh, as an organization you know let people express, you know, what they felt based on what they've experienced. Um, so, yeah, some of it is really, it really is tough to hear. Um, you know, for me personally, uh, some of it's not surprising, but to mm-hmm. hear other people say it and and, and kind of see it that way, um, and to be willing to say it, um, I mm-hmm. think that's part of, you know, how we move the needle um, is being honest and letting people. Um, express what is, you know, the reality of this ugly thing that we're dealing with, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, systemic racism.
0: Merv Seymour, special projects journalist for PBS Wisconsin, worked on this series that looks at the lasting effects of systemic racism. You can join in your questions and comments, 800-642-1234. Merv, you examined um, why talking about race in schools is difficult. Kaleem Kerr, founder and and CEO of uh, One City Schools in Madison, um, there's his voice in this piece. And here's Kerr answering your question about why talking about race can be difficult.
3: We have divorced ourselves uh, from the problem, that it is not only something that I'm embarrassed or don't want to be culpable in, but it's been persisting for so long. I've heard people say that, like I can't focus on the problem because it just brings me down because it's like we've not solved it. It's not going to be solved. And so I think there's a lot of hopelessness. We also live in a state that by and large has been privileged for a very long time. And so when you're privileged and things are going okay and you don't have to focus on the issue, you act like it doesn't exist.
0: What would you tell people who relate to that, that sentiment that, that the pervasiveness of racism leads to that feeling of hopelessness?
3: Well, I think that's a certainly a natural emotion um, when you're dealing with uh, pain and uh, oppression and, and struggle. Um, I'd I say that uh, when you think about the history of slavery and civil rights, um, you'll notice that, um, you know, people... Um, still strived and moved forward, you know, um, and, you know, it's, it's really one of the questions that I posed to, uh, Dr. Christy clark Bajar, who teaches history here, here at the University of Wisconsin. I said, man, how did, you know, how did black people survive all this, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, it's a, it's it's a, it's a mix of faith. Um, it's a mix of hope. And a, a lot of this is just perspective, you know, how you look at things. Um, we can choose, uh, to have hope or choose to be hopeless um and it's it, it may sound a little simple but i think that's uh, the way some people do look at it um you know and you know now we're looking at this movement uh, the social justice movement which is kind of a you know it's not new it certainly isn't new but it's uh, it 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 may be new in terms of uh how people have been affected by the things that are going on and so um you know, it's it's it, you know, you know you have to look at the. Um, you can't get overwhelmed by the the big picture of the challenge of of of, of trying to solve all you know all these issues.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You can only do what you can do and do a little piece at a time and 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 hopefully the needle starts to to move and begin to move and and um, you know, through education and awareness.
0: Merv, thank you for joining us.
3: Kate, I really appreciate you uh, letting us come on to to, to to kind of promote and talk about this upcoming screening. I think it's going to be an, a, a, an incredible event mm-hmm. for uh, folks in the community to learn uh, about systemic racism here in the state.
0: Riff Seymour, a special projects journalist at PBS Wisconsin's Here and Now. I'm Kate Archer Kent. You're listening to the Morning Show on the Ideas Network. It is The Morning Show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. We have ongoing discussions on what homelessness is like in Wisconsin, and we turn to Superior. Millie Roundsville is CEO of Northwest Wisconsin Community Services Agency, offering programs to prevent and respond to homelessness in the counties of Douglas, Bayfield, Ashland, Iron, and Price in the northernmost reaches of our state. Be part of the discussion. Call in with a question or add comments, 800-642-1234, email ideas at wpr.org. Millie, welcome back to the Ideas Network.
4: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Good morning. Lay out some of the issues you see. What are the greatest challenges facing the homeless population in northern Wisconsin?
4: I think our, our greatest challenge is lack of shelter space. We're very proud of our new project in Ashland. Um, previous to this, we had not had a shelter option at all, but I think the continued overall request for services, coupled with our lack of affordable housing options, we just continued to have requests for services and just trying to explore additional programs or services that we can try to offer to both prevent homelessness. And if somebody is homeless, make that episode as quickly as possible.
0: You know, we hear about this shortage of workforce housing, the shortage of low-income housing. How is this um, housing crunch affecting northern Wisconsin? What do you see?
4: I see it affecting in in all aspects. Obviously, it's infecting our employers being able to recruit employees, keep employees in communities. It affects the lower-income populations, particularly those on a fixed income that aren't able to afford market rent. So I guess it affects both ends of the spectrum and everything in between.
0: You know, when I think of Northern Wisconsin, I often turn to tourism. I think about the tourism economy and I wonder how does that affect access to affordable housing?
4: Obviously, Airbnbs do have some impact on the overall housing availability, um, as well as colleges lack of new construction, but also, with the tourism industry, the need for employees is huge. Mm-hmm. Many businesses have had to cut hours, reduce hours, maybe even close some days due to lack of employees. Of course, and for the employee side, the um, the lower incomes that we have here in Wisconsin, especially related to the minimum wage mm-hmm. and the number of hours you need to work in order to be able to afford that apartment that available.
0: Where are unhoused people typically wanting to live?
4: Our experience has been traditionally either in the City of Superior or the City of Ashland. That's obviously for a variety of reasons. Within our service area, that's really the only two areas that have somewhat of a transit system, hospitals, service providers. But most cases, those are where individuals we're working with tend to try to access housing.
0: But there needs to be a transportation network. I think what I'm hearing you say, is the working homeless population able to find transportation to and from work?
4: In some cases, obviously, we do have the um, the BART system in Ashland. Our shelter facility there is a stop for the BART system. We have a faith-based partner that provides us with bus passes. So during normal business hours, that does work obviously, for persons that are working third shift or starting prior to that, that can be a barrier. Superior more recently has been redoing some of the um, transit lines, we get our service from the DTA in Duluth. One of those changes resulted in a, a whole section of our town that no longer has access. So transportation has been, you know, an ongoing struggle as well as the lack of affordable housing.
0: Turning to the minimum wage uh, in Wisconsin, seven twenty-five dollars an hour, what are you learning about the link between wages and homelessness?
4: What we have learned is in a lot of our programs, we operate between the two communities. You know, Ashland, for instance, and Superior, for instance. Superior does tend to have a higher income for those we're working with, and it's because they're in Minnesota. So they have that access to employment to cross the bridge, so to speak. Where the starting wages, the minimum wage itself is much higher than it is on our side of the state. Most of the shelter residents that we're working with finding part-time or full-time employment, even at the $10 an hour, there's only going to be one unit available that's going to come up for rent. And there's going to be 50 applicants in an hour. Oh, wow. So that's a challenge.
0: 50 applicants in an hour?
4: Yes, has it always been this way? When did it become so competitive? Since the onset of the pandemic, I think part of it had to do with there was a lot of COVID relief. So there wasn't a lot of movement in the market. Obviously very important, right? Keeping people housed, we participated in the wear program. But then after that, you know, a slow turnover of units. So we have, like I said, the shelter facilities are full. We have plenty of vouchers, you know, with our supportive housing programs, Section 8 programs, but when you only have a handful of units and you have those 50 applicants, that's difficult because mm-hmm. you're also competing with the employers.
0: Millie Roundsville leads an agency that provides services to support and prevent homelessness in five northernmost Wisconsin counties. You can join in with your questions, your comments along the way, 800-642-1234, email ideas at wpr.org. Millie, the the Northwest Wisconsin uh, Community Services Agency is part of the state's poverty fighting network. And we talked with the organization's leader, Brad Paul, this week, and here's Paul talking about housing units needed in Wisconsin for low-income families.
1: There's 130,000 units that we would need to build in order to fill the demand for the extremely low-income household population in the state of Wisconsin. And the market isn't uh, producing those kind of units. The solution really is federal, and this isn't unique to Wisconsin.
0: So the solution is really federal. Do you agree with that? What stands out?
4: I do completely agree with that. We have not had an increase in public housing units. We've had some small increases in private developments, but a lot of those private developments, most of the population that we're working with can't afford $2,000 a month for a one bedroom apartment. For organizations such as ours, public housing, to be able to provide affordable housing, we really do need the assistance of the federal government to be able to provide that bricks and mortar to make those developments affordable.
0: Your agency offers a a coordinated entry program in northern Wisconsin to basically assess people without um, housing and, and match them up with housing. And you say people are frustrated by the agency's coordinated entry system. What is going on there?
4: I think it's difficult. Coordinated entry was a system that was designed for HUD-based programs. The purpose is anytime a person is presents as homeless, they connect with coordinated entry. As you said, they're assessed and they're put on a list. The, the barrier with that is it is a list truly. And the order of that list changes every time you assess somebody. So it's frustrating for individuals because it's a list. It's not like public housing where eventually you come to the top or eventually there is a unit. So for individuals that are on that, we we continue to make contact to see, you know, if they have found found a housing solution or if they're still homeless. But the way the list goes up and down and the order changes, and the fact that some people are never going to be able to be served. But that list is truly for HUD programs. It doesn't help with, you know, public housing, other subsidized housing. It's purely in response to um, a requirement to fill programs off of that coordinated entry list in the HUD world.
0: Sure, sure. How how do you contact people? How do you keep up in touch, um, you know, with people experiencing homelessness who might be moving a lot um, from place to place, difficult to track down?
4: And we do. We maintain a full-time staff position, and all of that position does is assess people and then follow up on the list, keeping contact, whether it's email, phone, another person. We do have some partnerships, you know, we have an outreach person with our superior police department, you know, that allow phone usage for that person to check in. If they're tenting, you know, of course, using our shelters, even if somebody's not housed, we do still allow them to do a little laundry, make a phone call, take a shower. But some of those cases, it is very difficult to keep track of somebody that is is moving night by night in some cases.
0: Millie, is, is homelessness less visible in more sparsely populated areas? Is it less like right in front of you?
4: I think traditionally it has been. You know, a lot of times you're not seeing where the camps are. You know, maybe organizations such as ours, you know, railroads, businesses, maybe that are located near them might have known where they were. Mm-hmm. But I do think... You know, people sleeping on on sidewalks have become more prevalent in recent years. It was truly the presence of the homelessness in the community of Ashland that triggered the response from the city to form our task force that ultimately led to the shelter there.
0: Millie Roundsville heads up Northwest Wisconsin Community Services Agency. It's based in Superior, providing support for low income residents in five Northern Wisconsin counties. Call in with a question. You can share what's on your mind at any point, 800-642-1234. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show on the Ideas Network. It is the morning show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. As part of ongoing conversations, we examine how to create safe, stable and affordable homes in Wisconsin and prevent homelessness. Call in with a question. You can share your thoughts at 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. We have Millie Roundsville, who is CEO of Northwest Wisconsin Community Services Agency. That's based in Superior, providing services in five northernmost Wisconsin counties. Millie, we heard from Ernest in Hayward, who called in, and Ernest says state and local tax codes should be changed to make it more affordable to build low-income housing. What do you make of that?
4: I do. I I think there's a lot of models that could be used. There's a kind of a recent movement with the land trust model, you know, using some of those maybe non-traditional or more emerging options for affordable housing. Some communities are even making use of accessory dwelling units, uh, rooming houses, shared housing. I do think we need to get creative just based on the overall housing shortage and lack of affordability. To maybe it isn't just one solution, but perhaps a variety of solutions to try to create more affordable housing units.
0: Do you see those outside the box types of uh, options starting to emerge in northern Wisconsin?
4: I do. There is a a group actually that's been meeting in the um, Ashland and Bayfield County area. I've been a part of that group that's working on creating a land trust. Obviously, the goal of that to create affordable housing options for the community. I know Stevens Point has an effort, the Cooley region has a land trust. So I do know those efforts are existing across the state. Rooming houses, there's very few left in Superior. Ashland doesn't even have an ordinance for that or other shared housing options. Mm -hmm. People tend to think of shared housing and you tend to think of students, but that wouldn't have to be the case. It could be, you know, two individuals renting a two bedroom house together that are unrelated and using that model. But based on lack of land, construction costs, there are a variety of things that do need to be done in all of our communities to try to increase housing. And as those developments exist, or you know, even something like a senior development where maybe that senior would then move into that, which would then have their home available for a first time home buyer, who would then use their previous unit for an affordable rental unit. But looking at the big picture on, a variety of things that could be done to help ease and shift that market for everyone. Hmm, almost a
0: domino effect there. Um, your your agency transformed a hotel into a shelter and the, the city of Ashland approving $700,000 in state pandemic relief funds for the project. How is the shelter serving people who are unhoused?
4: The shelter has been phenomenal. That had been something in our strategic plan for 20 years. We've never had a shelter for singles and families in our rural four counties, the city of Ashland. If they weren't willing to partner with us, this never would have happened. We opened on day 90. So we acquired that facility, did some renovations, had half of the facility available and opened to our first 10 families. Since then, we've completed a lot of necessary upgrades. We have 21 rooms available serving 21 households, computer lab, laundry facilities, but we served over hundred households in our first year. So if that's a demonstration of the need in our rural counties, that is huge hmm.
0: Are you and fa- 21
4: families. I mean, that's quite impressive just to be able to provide that type of sheltering capability in our rural areas.
0: 21 families and we're not talking about individuals here these are family units this is more than one person.
4: We do we like that we especially during the height of the pandemic the facility itself was a former hotel so with COVID and all the other things going on everybody has a private bathroom a private exit so being able to take both families and signals when somebody presents has been wonderful. We're not limited to, we can only serve a certain population. As somebody presents, we're able to make that accommodation and we like having that flexibility and that service available.
0: How did your agency secure a permit uh, to operate a a shelter out of a former hotel?
4: It was, I think a little difficult. I think anytime there's a, a change of use process done in a community that relates to any sort of a connotation of affordable, subsidized homeless, I think there's always some fear that comes up in a community. You know, maybe not so much stereotyping as much as sometimes just not familiar with how things are going to operate. We did have to go through the change of use process, both through zoning and through the Council. I know there was a, a lot of unhappy concerns, but there was also some strong support, which ultimately resulted in us achieving that that conditional use permit to create the shelter facility.
0: Did you encounter any um, not-in-my-backyard tendencies there?
4: A lot, hours worth. Um, you probably can go back and reread the, the testimony from both the zoning and the council level. But like I said, we have done a lot of things to try to put our neighbors at ease. I mean, we do have 24-hour staffing. We have a security camera system. It's not a drop-in shelter, per se, where people change constantly. We are doing background checks. We have case management. So I think some of it is, is just an overall fear of what it would look like or what it would turn into. As opposed to now driving by, it doesn't look any different than it did when it operated as a hotel. There just isn't a hotel sign anymore.
0: Was there a learning curve to establish a shelter and redevelop a hotel property?
4: We had looked at this for many years, as I said, Mm -hmm. and in partnering with the city, we'd actually looked at a couple different locations. We had the ability that we had had come in ahead of time and done an inspection so we knew what to expect. We had some additional funding sources to cover that rehab. Our organization has operated another shelter in Superior for many years. So we had a lot of the the policies, the procedures, you know, those sort of things in place. Those fundamentals. It was a matter of getting mm-hmm. through the acquisition process so we could actually start implementing those things.
0: Millie Roundsville leads an agency providing services to support and prevent homelessness in five northern Wisconsin counties. You can join the conversation. 800-642-1234. Call in with your questions and comments. Millie. You mentioned that your shelters are full. Are you turning people away?
4: Yes, unfortunately. And we don't have a strong system for hotel vouchers either. It is unfortunate that we do have, you know, individuals that are remaining unhoused. Some, of course, by their choice. You know, there is a population of people that just want to know where where is it safe for me to put my tent, so to speak. Well, always, of course, allow those individual showers and things like that. But there are others that, not to their choice, are having to either couch surf, sleep in a car. But if the more we can create in our communities to make that shelter sh- stay shorter, the more space we will free up to allow new new families to be able to come through. But looking at things on a holistic level. We're also creating an 11-unit transitional housing program next to that shelter. So, again, looking at all the services on a community level for all populations, that will help reduce the numbers that need things at that given point in time.
0: I want to key in here on safety. Our show recently visited a Milwaukee homeless shelter to talk with people experiencing homelessness. And one of our producers spoke with Shirley, who says being homeless is dangerous.
2: I feel like being
0: out here on the streets when you're a woman is very, very dangerous. You have no help, nobody that will protect you. Do you feel that there is a safety concern in northern Wisconsin with experiencing homelessness?
4: Very much so. I mean, obviously there's a safety concerns that were just reference related to being alone, potentially being a victim of a crime. There's also concerns about weather. I mean, we have 40 below wind chills up here on the lake, Mm -hmm. you know, three and four feet of snow that come in. So definitely exposure to the elements. Had individuals come in, all their fingers and toes have been frostbitten. So definite safety concerns on a variety of levels.
0: Where do people go when they're turned away?
4: We do have a couple of options. Um, Bad River, one of our tribal partners, does have a warming center that they'll be opening again for this winter season. Locally, we're working on, of course, you know, transportation options and that to ensure individuals can get there. We don't have any warming centers in Superior, but we do have one in Duluth. The city had used a lot of their pandemic resources to expand those options as well, unfortunately. But outside of those, it it pretty much is, you know, maybe staying with somebody you don't know, staying in a car, you know, doubling up is always a safety concern as well.
0: Millie, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time and being able to to talk about what we're experiencing up here.
0: Millie Roundsville is CEO of Northwest Wisconsin Community Services Agency, programs for low-income residents in five northernmost counties. Our show is producing a range of conversations about homelessness and housing insecurity. And you can find links to recent conversations, recent segments in this ongoing coverage. And most of all, you can share your program ideas on housing and on this issue. Please do connect with us at WPR.org slash mornings. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show here on the Ideas
4: Network.